All right, all right, all right. Here we are with another low end podcast. And today I am joined by the notorious fan of Glenn Danzig uh, <laughs> from the infamous acoustic rock band Ghost in the Willow, Mr. Gil Rodriguez. Hey, how's it going? It's it's going good. How are you doing? Uh, you know, still alive. Still alive? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Strikes and gutters, ups and downs. You know, yeah. That, that kind of thing. Okay, well, let's just get this out of the way. Sure. Are you really a Glenn Danzig fan? No. Or do you just like the memes? It's it's the memes, and it's like I find him so silly that it's funny. <laughs> I find him to be like kind of – he's he's. Well, I guess to be fair, he's literally what he thinks he is, which is a comic book character. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, I mean, I've, I've never met the guy, so I, I'm not saying anything about him personally, you know, but it's like – he just comes across like a cartoon and that's cool like some some people are really into that it's like kiss you know what i mean so take with that with what you will so really like the the dance except was just funny to me because it's it's just it's just absurd so you're not even a fan of like misfits or no like any of the music no i don't hate it uh, but i'm not like a fan or anything like like that no like when it i hear it on the radio or something or on spotify like i i don't exactly yeah. skip it you know and i'm like yeah. oh yeah this is the guy from the you know what i mean but I know a lot of people who are, you know, we, we all like what we like. And yeah. that's, for me, that's not really one, one of them. It's just, it's the endearing funniness of it, you know. <laughs> well, see, I, I like the music, but I'm not a fan of Glenn Danzig. Yeah, so no, like that can, like, I can see that for sure. I mean, I, like I said, there are plenty of other bands that I dislike uh, much more. Yeah. You know, he's, I guess I to that. me, he's kind of lukewarm, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, see, I like all of it. I like Misfits. I like Samhain and even Danzig stuff mm-hmm. um, I dig but I really like the Misfits I tried to get into it for a second I had a buddy that had a bunch of like Danzig and Misfits like VHS tapes mm-hmm. that he'd buy at Bookman's for like two bucks or whatever and he lived next door to me at the time and he'd just come, come over and we would just like stay up late and watch these videos and we'd just have a laugh and after a while it was just like are we watching this because we think it's funny or are we like watching this because we actually enjoy it and it's funny on the side you know so it was kind of one of those things like when you see a train wreck you're like oh that's horrible but i can't look away yeah it was kind of like that yeah for sure <laughs> well, like i said it's like one of those things where him him as an artist or or like his live kind of persona yeah as well is, is kind of cheesy yeah i mean i find it very curious man and I'm, I'm really cool that i'm glad that they got back together for a little bit you know for the for the for the cash grab and yeah. uh, as you as you should, I think you're entitled to to a, to a certain degree, and um, but yeah, I think it's it's I find it fascinating. Like I just I just I just stare at it. Like <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's a that's a that's a, it's but it's like watching heart surgery or like watching like pimple pop videos or whatever. Yeah. You're just like, oh wow, I can't I can't, you can't look, look away. I can't look away. Like this is pretty funny. You know, that's funny for the for those what we're talking about here is for years now. Um, Sean, our drummer, uh, yeah. Sean, Gil, and I, we have this thing where we're constantly sending each other memes, even if it's just Glenn Danzig standing next to a wolf, you know, howling at the moon. <laughs> it's, just, it's, so it's just random <laughs> memes. Like, whatever, like, if it's a birthday, you know, right. we'll send, like, a birthday cat cake or something. Yeah. And then, just, of course, the videos. Yeah. And I remember I was at a... He pops up in random places, like a photo or a painting of him somewhere that it just immediately makes me think <laughs> Some of you. Velvet painting. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like I was in San Diego one time at a restaurant and they had this huge Danzig with a cat velvet painting in the bathroom. And I'm yes. like, why is that here? And all I could think of, like, I got to send that to Mark. <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> 
That is epic. Like how people have an Elvis room. I'm sure there are people that have a dancing room. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're big Elvis fans too. Same so thing. We have yeah, Elvis yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But that's. I might have to look for one of those. Yeah, I think it. It really needs to really so say if I have room in here, I would. Maybe. It would really complete the hodgepodge. I think it would throw this room because we have. There's a lot of like concert posters and comic book stuff on these walls. I think it'd be really fun if you just threw a Danzig velvet painting up to really like uh, like balance it out it would shift the wall in such a way behind the curtain yeah and as soon as somebody comes in i can open the curtain and there he is right almost like an altar yeah it would totally like (laughs) shift the balance of the room which goes from oh yeah concerts and comics and star wars and oh shit (laughs) and it would be a good acoustic like dampener too because it'd be velvet yeah see there you go not glass dancing saving the day man that is that is a great idea. I, I think may, it is. I, I think you'd have, have to, to find that. one of those. Yeah. Or, you, you know, my birthday's coming up. So if you feel like you want to buy me something for Absolutely. my birthday. <laughs> I'm sure I could find one for real cheap. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> we could probably make one. <laughs> Just get black velvet and like put like a printed out picture of his face on there. Yeah, that would work too. But I see, I could see, I'm going to, seriously, I'm going to look it up as soon as we're I done I think you here. should. Yeah. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> All right. Well. Yeah, so let's kind of move on to real things that that <laughs> I think Dan would, would disagree that you know, he is real and, and he and he does matter. He does. Yeah, he is real. He is a real guy. He's real Danzigy. He's, he has feelings and emotions. Oh my god! All all I can think about is hips don't lie and grocery. The grocery yeah, list. I there was this in one of these videos. This is the last thing I'll say. It was one of those videos that my buddy bought, and it was just like a tour documentary video and there's literally like they're interviewing him while he's reading a Wolverine comic <laughs> and he's basically just like answering questions while he, I'm like, I like, like, is this guy being serious? Or just is random. It, or is it just a stick? And he's like, so what are you reading there? He's like, and he shows the page of the comic book. He's like, oh yeah, what comic book, what, what, what comic is that? Wolverine. <laughs> Duh. And he's like, oh, why, why, why Wolverine? He's like, cause it's cool. <laughs> and like, that's it. And I'm just like, that's the funniest fucking thing. His interviews are random. Yeah, they uh, quite are. They quite are. He's either hit or miss. Like he's real talkative, or he's one word answers. Combative. I I saw a Misfit soundcheck once years ago, um, with when it was Jerry Only, and Dez and Marky Ramone on the drums, in like two thousand two, two thousand three. It was at the uh, now defunct Bash on Ash, mm-hmm. and I snuck into the soundcheck. And it was cool because like, I, I went because I'm, I'm a huge Ramones fan. So I'm like, cool, Marky Ramone on drums. So I, t- I took my little cassette recorder and like they were doing, they did like a Black Flag song. They did like a Ramones cover and then a Misfits tune for the sound check. And it was pretty neat. And I, I didn't get to see the show, though. I don't, hmm. I think my, my only interest was to see Marky Ram, Ram, Ramone. Yeah. But I didn't stick around for the, for the show. So did I you did. ever get to see the Ramones? No, I've since have seen... Uh, the spinoffs from like the current living members. Like, I haven't seen Marky yet. Actually, no, I saw Marky with with the Misfits, but not performing Marky Ramone. I've seen CJ Ramone twice, and he's probably my favorite Ramone. And then I've seen Richie Ramone twice, mm-hmm. and they're they're they do the Ramones in a very different way from each other, and it's really cool. Yeah, because Richie Ramone was their drummer in the mid '80s, and so he kind of sticks to his his era and before. Mm-hmm. And but he's writing new stuff too, and his stuff kind of leans on more like I think like a metal or hard rock side, so it blends together really well. And then CJ just does everything, 
you know, cause he was in the band for the last six years, six or seven years. And he's cool. Cause he does everything. He sang song, he sang songs on the records. And, and so those, that's, that's buzz closest I've ever gotten to that sort of thing. But there, it's just really great to see them still doing these types, types of things. Yeah. I and, saw him in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, at Nautica Stadium, it was just them. Oh wow! You know, they came out to the. Oh yeah, the, the, um, the Sergio spaghetti. Mar- yeah, the spaghetti. Western. Yeah, Sergio just, Leone, I think, is what, who wrote those. I remember because it was raining really hard, and they still played. I remember Steam. They just sounded amazing. It was yeah, a great show. I I was a I was a really obsessive with them for a long time, for a few years, and I I you know bought all the live videos and. I was always fascinated by the later era of the Ramones mm-hmm. because the songs were faster, they were heavier, and they were yeah. just more like raw. Yeah. Like when people dis- when you read about the Ramones on a printed page, it's written in as in a there's a certain description people always use, which is you know the buzzsaw guitars, the breakneck speeds, and this and that. And then when you go hear those first couple albums, it's like <laughs> I it's I pop. don't I don't hear that. Yeah. Like it sounds like pop to me, which is cool. And then when you hear the live stuff, it's like, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, it was totally member driven. Yeah, you know, once they got Marky, and yeah, it's just you yeah, know, their tempo. Yeah, you know, it just got faster. I think Johnny always wanted the fa- tempos to get faster. From what I've read of all the regurgitated biographies I've read, was that it was his thing when he wanted to play faster and faster, and it got to a point where Joey was like, I can't sing. Like <laughs> he's like, we're playing these so fast, I can't really he's, sing the songs. To skip words. Yeah, and, he has to skip yeah. words. And he's like, well, that doesn't matter. They're they're here to dance around, so we got to give them, you know, give them the show. So yeah, so that's why I've always gravitated towards like the late '80s and to the end of the Ramones, you know, career more than because the album started to get sonically the way they were represented. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the guitars were fuzzy and they were really overdriven and and just really kind of obscure lyrics about nothing that I really enjoyed, you know. <laughs> And then once CJ got in the band, he added, you know, the youth and vitality to it. And it was great. So I just love, I, I celebrate the Ramones entire career, but I tend to focus from like 84 to the end. So like 84 okay. to 96 is kind of like, I like that stuff. Yeah. I'm a compilation kind of mm-hmm. that spans mm-hmm. the entire career. For sure. Guy. I mean, like, I think my favorite Ramones album was probably Brain Drain mm-hmm. with I Believe in Miracles on it. And uh, that's like the Brain Drain and Adios Amigos, the last one, are like my two favorite Ramones records. And then a third one would probably be Too Tough to Die. Yeah. One of the greatest cover bands that, you know, that pull out covers. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were an amazing band. Yeah, absolutely. So, like they like, wow, I didn't think you could strip a three song, a three chord song down to even further. Mm-hmm. And they did. And it was great. It was brilliant. Yeah. All right. So let's. uh since we're on music, and mm-hmm. we'll probably be on music most of this podcast, let's get into the beginning for you. Um, what was music like when you were a kid? You know, I mean, you can go all the way back to with your family. I don't sure. Know if music um, people. Or... I did, my my family wasn't really a music family. Um, my father was musical a little bit. He really enjoyed music as a kid. He was a Beatles fan growing up in the '60s, and um, so he he had a music bug, and then. But no one on my mom's side, there was no other musical influence. My brother was a hell of a guitar player, and he could he could play guitar the way you and I eat, breathe, and go into credit card debt. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just yeah. endlessly talented at, at it. 
so that was my first exposure to the instrument but music I, I like to say I kind of just found out about it on my own or I just kind of got into little things as a, as a kid and um, I really got into Elvis when I was really young so I was a big Elvis fan and but I think I don't know why I couldn't I think it was more of just for the entertainment value of it it was different and then from there I really just yeah the karate moves <laughs> and um from there, I just then I started to get into his contemporaries, and then when I found out about Buddy Holly, that was probably my first like guitar hero was probably Buddy Holly. That made, basically Elvis made me want to like be an entertainer, mm-hmm. but Buddy Holly made me want to be a musician. Okay, and then it it just kind of extrapolated from there, and I just became obsessive compulsive with it. You know, it's just and it would branch to however I could consume it. It didn't matter what it was, and you know, watching MTV a little bit. And then I got into Oasis as I got a little bit older when I was like 12, like you know, Oasis was, he kind of taught me about songwriting in a way. And then, mm-hmm. and then by junior high, that's when you discover punk rock with your friends, but we weren't really into the contemporary punk rock of the time. It was more or less, we were just passing around a black flag tape in the bathroom. Yeah. So it wasn't like, <laughs> like it, fat wreck punk. No, it wasn't it was more old school. No, it wasn't. It was, I think my first real concept of punk rock was, was probably Black Flag, and I think like I was really scared of it when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. I remember like my because like, me and my buddies were really into like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, which had like a punk rock influence, mm-hmm. but it wasn't direct. Yeah, more poppy. Right. So then when you know your friend like we would it was funny looking back at it we would pass around this black flag tape in the bathroom like it like it was a playboy or something <laughs> no, <laughs> like was supposed to hear this right right well remember i was supposed to check check, 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 check check this out check this out this is that band that kurt cobain was was, was always talking about <laughs> like oh okay sweet 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 so we'd like every other period we'd like hand it to each other that's <laughs> like, funny you know and i don't know i think i think a buddy of mine justin was the first one that found it or i don't know how he got a tape of it or whatever or maybe he found a cd and copied the cd to, to cassette or whatever and then i remember like again it was like a train wreck i'm like wow this is so brutal it's not my thing but i can't stop listening to it and it was just i was like wow so i just so i think by that point you know living in east mesa Black Flag was about as much shock value as you could get, mm-hmm. you know, before, you know, this and this is like right around the time Marilyn Manson was kind of coming out in a mainstream sense. So musically speaking, I didn't find Marilyn Manson very shocking, but I found Black Flag to be very shocking. Hmm. So I just kind of like kept that under my pillow for a long time. And it was always kind of my, you know, little thing that Black Flag was. And then, you know, you get older, you get into different stuff and then. I don't think I started really writing my own songs until the, you know, I was about like 19, 20 years old, maybe. And that's when you started playing guitar? Yeah, I, so I actually started playing guitar when I was about 12, like 12 years old. My so brother. What year? Oh, God. What, what would have that been? Like 90. So early 90s? 93, 94, something yeah. like that. And um, yeah, like, I wasn't really aware of like modern music that much. Like I, I had no not outlet I, I had no uh exposure to like a, in a modern to what modern music was because i was an only child i didn't you know my my i had a half brother but he was nine years older than me so he was already like done and gone by the time i was in, in, interested in music i think even then he would listen to jazz a lot hmm. he listened to jazz and then i found out in later years that he was into like heavy metal like 80s butt rock metal yeah so i think that's where he got his virtuosoness from was the combination of jazz and and like shredders, 
you know. It's cool. Like Thrice, the dude from Thrice was like a classical guitarist. Yeah, and, and it like totally makes sense. Yeah. And then um, what uh, to correlate that into it? I remember another early memory was I think my brother was getting getting kicked out of an apartment that he lived with with a girlfriend at the time, and the girlfriend was a huge STP fan, mm-hmm. and so she had like Sun Devil Pilots posters up everywhere. And then my brother was always constantly learning Sun Devil Pilot songs, so. That was like my first really being aware of modern music, I think, mm-hmm. was kind of through him of him playing Sun Devil Pilot songs that he learned to play for his girlfriend and then him getting <laughs> kicked out and seeing a bunch of Sun Devil Pilots like CDs and tapes everywhere. <laughs> and um, and until so you follow these little threads, you know, you, you get these little threads as a kid and you kind of start pulling on them to see where they kind of lead. And I just got into everything, you know. I was never into the same stuff that my friends were as, as modern music. I wasn't into Limp Bizkit. I sure as shit hated pop punk like Blink-182 and Sum 41. Mm-hmm. I absolutely couldn't stand that stuff. I think it was because I latched on to music that, to me, in my little naive brain, was, to me, a little bit more serious. Things that had to do with a little bit more urgency. And I think some people escape. Neg, you know, negative thoughts or depressive thoughts through happy music. I tended to want to listen to depressing music to help magnify my my kind of young depression growing up, mm-hmm. and that made me feel better after the fact. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it's like I had to kind of. I felt. I feel like I, looking back at it, I think I was subconsciously, you know, wanted to hear you know Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains stuff that's really gloomy and dark. Because to me, that's probably how I felt. And I wanted to amplify that because there was nobody else around me that I could amplify that with. Mm-hmm. Everyone else was, you know, did it all for the nookie and, <laughs> you know, all the small things. And like, that didn't relate to me. Like I, 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 I wasn't a hyper kid. So I, I had no, it, it didn't click with me. Yeah. So I found kind of like the solitude in that kind of world, like in that sort of that rainy Seattle world that's, you know, myth, mythologist, mythologist, you know the word. Mythological? Mytho- mythologicalized. Oh. Mythologized. Yeah, mythologized. Mythologized. Ro- I'm from Ohio, man. So <laughs> I, my wife and my mother-in-law are both English, like, major people. Oh, so okay. they're constantly yeah. correcting me. So, like, that kind of <laughs> Seattle thing was just a, that made more sense to me in a way. Like, it, that was a reflection of my inner emotions that I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. but i was like five years too late for that yeah you know like by that point like when you think of music from 95 to 2000 like it's a fucking world of difference yeah whereas now like 2015 to 2020 there's not much difference in that there's there's no landscape change really but 95 to 2000 was like so huge you went from smashing pumpkins soundgarden pearl jam nirvana to an extent and then then you had the wallflowers. Yeah. And then you had the counting crows. And then you had the gin blossoms. And then right in the middle of that, no doubt, pops in. And then Skog breaks. Yeah. And then... It- so when I was in high school, at that time where the influence of music, I was in the middle of the grunge. That's why I'm still a 90s guy. Right. Because that was like... That's what I learned how to write music on. That's what I learned how to play music on. Mm-hmm. That was my biggest influence because that's I was in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But then when I started joining bands, actually one band, they wanted to be, they were more of a rockabilly punk band Mm -hmm. and they wanted to get more like bad religion-y style punk. Gotcha. And that's when they added me. 
so we were in the middle of like that fat wreck kind of era suicide machines yeah to to fat wreck stuff this is a atomic hellcats that you're talking about. yeah atomic hellcats and we played with the last god bands swinging utters Mm -hmm. you know suicide machines bands like that but we were more all over the map until i started writing the music then Mm -hmm. it was more foo fighters meets social distortion right instead of bad religion-y style punk mixed with rockabilly Mm -hmm. punk stuff so I feel you with the 90s stuff. Yeah. But I, it's like I lived through all of that. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, like you, you brought up like the black flags, back black flag. Sorry, please don't hunt me down for saying the F word. <laughs> I did not mean to, to say the F-A-G word. Well, we can edit that out. <laughs> yeah, sure. I can edit that out. But but to me. Well, actually, there is a, sorry, so I know, there is a black flag tribute band called Black Flag. Black flag, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. Uh, to me, and I'm from a small school as well, and there was only a handful of people that listened to anything but rap or, or country or whatever. So I didn't have influences. The biggest influence I had was Michael Bob, and that was like, you know, like Billy Idol, Joan Jett, mm-hmm. The Who, you know, stuff like that. Black Flag. And those, and those are all bands that I kind of found out about later and later. got into a lot later. Yeah, and know? that's kind of the same thing with me. To me, punk rock, and I didn't know this because I was a skater, was bands like Agnostic Front, DRI, which was really thrash. Mm-hmm. You know, Cro-Mags, Gorilla Biscuits, all those kind of yeah. hardcore bands and thrash bands I thought was punk rock because that was aggressive. It was 100 miles an hour. <laughs> My dad didn't understand. You know, you can't even bang your head to this. It's so you fast. Even bang you know what I mean? It's like, what, why do you listen to this? And they were scared. You know, because they were, they thought it was evil. But I'm mm-hmm. like, this is political. Yeah, you know, and think about political stuff. Yeah, and and I I think once I got into the Clash is when I think I really kind of like yeah. woke up as far as like, you know, my attitude shifted a lot from an introspective, grunge self awareness into more of like an outer awareness. Mm-hmm. So once I got once I heard London, I remember what it was was I was leaving a Pearl Jam concert. And I, it was weird that I had met Joe Strummer and Chance the year before, so was, so. But A didn't really B happened to happen before A did. Yeah. If that makes sense. So like I met Joe Strummer and that was great. And then I was at a Pearl Jam concert in '03 after Joe had died already, and my friend and I were leaving the concert and I was like, "What? What is this song? Like this sounds really great." And it was, he was like, "Oh, I think it's The Clash." And I'm like, oh, well, do you know what song it is? And he's like, I don't, I think, I, I don't know, but I remember the lines, you know, go straight to Hellboy. And so I spent like the better part of a year trying to track down what song that was. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up buying like all these Clash albums trying to find that one song before you, I really had the internet to cruise. So there's no YouTube to like, yeah, you, you have to find it. I'm like, okay, you're like, you're going to have to buy the album. Mm-hmm. Didn't know where to start. And I would talk to my friends that, that were into punk rock. And I was like, hey, what do you know about this band, The Clash? Oh, buy, pay, pick up London Calling. I pick up Lennon Calling, and I'm like, this doesn't sound like punk. He's like, no, it is. Trust me. And I'm like, all right, cool, great. But that song I wanted wasn't on it. Sure enough, I buy all the Clash albums, listen to them back to back, loved it, but still couldn't find that one song. Turns out the last one I bought. <laughs> well, it was a good thing because you yeah. got everything else. You know? Yeah, so it was the Combat Rock was like the last one I finally fucking bought. And it was, I'm like, that's the one. Yep. And like, And that became like my favorite Clash song. And I, I kind of got into all these things. It feels like... When I think about it, it feels like all at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, um, I was well, into that happens. Yeah. Once you find one thing and then it, it it's just explodes, to... explodes out to everything yeah. else. Cause I think Pearl Jam helped a lot because I was really into them 
and they were always doing like Clash covers and Ramones covers and Who covers and mm -hmm. their live shows that I kind of wanted to filter through. Well, what do the original versions of these songs sound like? And like that's when I get turned on to other bands, and then those bands turn into other bands, turn into other bands, and before you know it, here we are. So that's kind of the earliness of that, and then. There's only been a handful of bands that I could that I there was there was all there were all bands that I really enjoyed and really liked, but there was only maybe five that over the course of my life so far that really like where I can think of as like turning points in my musical journey or mm -hmm. turning points in my musical consciousness, I guess you could say. And I think the first one that really hit big where I just felt so like I could feel it in my chest was the was the replacements. Yeah. Like when I first heard the replacements, like it just it was the I was like I had never heard a band like older, it, old, older, older, yeah, older, way old stuff. Yeah, it was, it was from the eighties, <laughs> and like I had no connection to that other than this guy, my 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 friend Tony Jones, that I met at a bar, and I would talk to music with him about it on a regular basis, and he knew that I was into Pearl Jam and. He was big into the replacements, and he made me this replacements compilation CD that, to this day, I think is like the best replacements comp. Like when I hear like other replacements best ofs, I'm like, no, it doesn't flow the same way Tony's yeah. did. Like, <laughs> you know, he had a calling, but he, yeah, it. yeah. So I kept it. So I still have it. And to me, like even when I started getting on Spotify, I arranged my replacements playlist after <laughs> Tony's synced you know, it up. Yeah, synced it up to that because I'm like, no, this is how you got to listen to it. <laughs> And might have to share that with it me. It wasn't chronological. It was just like it just had a flow that yeah. I that to this day. But anyway, that was probably the first band that really kind of that I went like I just fell in love with. Like I loved Pearl Jam. I still do. They're still one of my top five favorite bands. But there's nothing really romantic about it, about the band, I think, in general, as far as musically speaking, one could say. Or at least how you get into a band like that. Oh no, that's just that's just wrong. That's that's <laughs> incorrect. Sorry, never mind. Anyway, point being is that well, to it's me, a personal thing, right? Yeah, and I think to me the replacements made me kind of feel very kind of romantic in a weird way. Mm -hmm. it, it that amplified like my lonely loser side, but that 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 hopeless romantic lonely loser, you're clumsy and awkward, but you don't know it, type of a thing, and that was and I think I was about nineteen at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I was sorry, sorry to say I was sneaking into bars when I was 19 yeah. and that's how I met Tony. But anyway, point, point, point being is that sneaking into that bar and having Tony turn me out of the replacements completely changed my life. Like yeah. just absolutely like it was a different ground zero. So did you spin off the Paul Westerberg? Did you? Yeah, I was aware of Paul Westerberg at that time because he was on the single sound soundtrack. Mm -hmm. I think that's how he introduced the replacements to me. It was like, oh, well, you're into grunge, which means you have the single soundtrack. Well, you know that song, that's track one on that. That's Paul Westerberg who was in the replacements. Yeah, which so pretty much is not. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, later replacements is close. But, right. Yeah. People, you know, people say make the connection between the replacements and Nirvana, and I can kind of see it to a degree. I hear it a lot in the vocal stylings of their later stuff, to yeah. a way. But, uh, you know, I can't really say one way or the other. But, yeah, the replacements just kind of, they just stuck with me so hard for so long, especially for a band that had long broken up. Mm -hmm. by, by that point, Westerberg wasn't even really doing solo tours, so I couldn't really hear about if he was coming to town or not. 
So they were just this mythological band that only existed to me mm-hmm. in this one, like, you know, CD compilation. And it, it, it was, so it was like this little nugget that I carried around that I didn't really tell anybody about because I didn't want to get anybody into it because <laughs> I, I didn't want anybody else to like, like it. <laughs> and fast forward years later, I'm like, fuck, everybody likes it. See, I didn't have that problem. Nobody liked what I liked. So yeah, actually, I didn't you know, have to worry about that. No one liked what I liked either because I was always five years too late or whatever. So it was, it was hard. So I think by default, I always got along better with my older mus- musician friends who were into that stuff. You know, so I didn't really, yeah. ha- I didn't have anybody. Well, once grunge hit, I mean, everybody liked. Well, I mean, they had their pick. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was Nirvana or Pearl Jam or whatever. But to me, I liked it all. Yeah, same, same here. And I guess that's kind of unique because you're right. At that time, everybody had it was there was a one. It was yeah. either Alice in Chains or it was Soundgarden or, or Nirvana or, or, Pilots or, 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 or even Candlebox. Yeah, you whatever. Know, to 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 a thing and and um, yeah, I think. Because I kind of got into it after the fact, I was able to kind of listen to it all without any sort of pretense or kind of judgment on it. Yeah. You know, I could just enjoy it for what it was. Yeah. And then as I've gotten older and diff- into different guitar things, I go back and listen to those from like a guitar point of view or from like a vocal point of view. Yeah. And find listen to them with as a, a musician. Yeah. As a musician, I go back and listen to it for what are the little things here, here and there that I like. So that's why I've kind of over the last five years, like gotten more into Soundgarden again mm-hmm. and more into Stone Devil Pilots again. Cause like for the, for the guitar tones, you know, sh- you know, Sean yes. Harris and I geek over the, the guitar tones on those STP records all the time after yeah. practice. Yeah. He had, <laughs> you know? he had a good sound. Yeah. Still does. Still does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and when I started writing music was in that era. Mm-hmm. So, and, and uh, it's obvious, right? I mean, you hear our stuff. I don't think it's that obvious. Well, man. especially the early stuff. I guess yeah, I'd say I guess you that. Could say. It was more because that was stuff that I wrote in the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so now, uh, you know, our stuff is a little more. It's subtle broadened. and nuanced. Yeah, it's, it's broadened. It's, it's, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so so you said you started playing. Around that, you know, when you were younger, yeah, and then I think so. I think seriously when I was like nineteen. By the time I got nineteen, I was, you know, I think yeah, sixteen. I got my first proper guitar. My dad bought me a uh, an Epiphone Les Paul, mm-hmm. and that was my first like nice guitar. It was an Epiphone Les Paul standard in translucent blue. No, oh, nice. It was nice. So when you first started writing music, what were what were your influences when you first I don't, started writing music? I don't know. I can't, I don't think I have any recordings from that early, so I don't really, I can't look back and pinpoint it, but I'm sure it was a lot of, uh, it was just me writing it, so I I wanted to write Pearl Jam style stuff, but it's hard to write a riff and sing at the same time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Yeah. So I had to kind of get into more chordy stuff. So I think there's a little, I think I was really probably influenced by a combination of Kurt Cobain and Joe Strummer, really. Okay. Like this, I liked the simplicity of Nirvana, and I so and I so I always kind of try to stick to that sort of sim, that simple melody, that three chord melody type things. Mm-hmm. And then Joe Strummer, kind of in the anger and the delivery, I think. So I think my earliest songs I was trying to write was probably uh, trying to write versions of those. You know, actually, song for Alice our most recent single from ghosts in the willow that I think technically was like the first song I wrote. Oh, um, it's, a, I don't remember writing anything ever before that. I think that was the first time I wrote a song that actually was like a complete, it was a complete product. thing that was 
directly influenced by something I experienced. Okay. So I th- so I kind of consider that like my first song. You know, and, and we I played it in by various bands for years, but it never fit the bands I was in until this past year when we decided to put out a single that was like, well, let's do this one. Mm-hmm. And we've pulled that one out of the hat and it just sounded great. It fits more of where we're going as a band now, you know? Yeah. So it kind of came full circle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's funny how stuff that you wrote. Yeah. You know? And cause it was, it's, a decade ago it stuck so. out like a sore thumb then. And then it just still stuck around in my back pocket that I was, mm-hmm. it was never the right time, never the right band, never the right pieces. I was always doing something different. And this time it just worked. And it, it, it sucks that it had to come from such a dark place, but at the end of the day, something has to grow out of that, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's, um, you know, I've been in your world, so to speak, for all the bands you've been in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's get into kind of the history of your, you know, from To The Sea. Wow. You know, okay. how did you get started with those bands and oh, you know, how did yeah, you was, move well, on? Those, are, and, those are a long time ago. That, that, um, to The Sea, I think, was 2006, 2007, I think. And there was a brief period in, in my early 20s where I couldn't play guitar. I had a... I, got cerratic arthritis in my left hand and for about two years I couldn't play guitar period mm-hmm. my hands were just my hand was just so swollen so I but I was always hanging around bands and I at that time I had friends in a band called New York Homecoming and they became Red Republic after that specifically Russ Martin and Chris Windsor Chris Chris Windsor now plays in Luau Russ Martin is now in the Edisons oh. but at that time, they, they were in a band together and I would just hang around them, you know, just kind of a, just a hanger on, I think, just so I could still be near music and still be the local scene yeah. and still be, even though I couldn't play or contribute anything, you know, I don't think, I don't think I contributed much more than empty wine bottles and drunken <laughs> opinions and trying to get an emo band to play Pearl Jam. You yeah. Know? So what are you going to do? I, I, looking back at it, I'm like, God, I was an asshole. I was such a little punk to those to those <laughs> dudes, tor- torturing those guys. But anyway, so I was hanging around them a lot. And then I tried to audition for drums, didn't get in. Tried, I did a show with them playing bass as a fill-in, and it worked. But I couldn't quite get the nuance of bass playing at that point. And I was just drinking a lot, I remember. And I guess, I, yeah, I remember drinking a lot, but not really rem- remembering why. Yeah. I think I was just out of... Well, you were in your early 20s. So yeah, you know, it was what just... what you do. Yeah, it was boredom. So, and then my hand stopped working, and I couldn't play, really. And then one day, I I went online and found out about turmeric and Aleve, and started taking that, and my swelling just went down, like, almost overnight. And I was just like, wow, I spent two years suffering, not doing anything, yeah. being very inactive in a time of your life when you're supposed to be the most active. And, that, and it was very frustrating. And I feel like I've kind of been trying to play catch up ever since. And so once my hand got back in, in order, I started a band. Um, I'm, man, I'm getting the timelines all wrong. But anyway, I started a band... Um, called uh god what the fuck were we called i can't remember it now black uh, blackboard that's what it was oh god i had to dig i had to dig deep (laughs) 
I started a band called Blackboard with with Chris Windsor on bass and I, I just to kind of you know and, and it was nice I started to feel good not knowing how to do anything started that and then Blackboard became uh, another band I was trying to do Blackboard Part 2 because my whole band had, had left by that point Chris Windsor left to I think to start New York Homecoming and then my drummer just stopped being friends with me he like bro- he broke up with me o- over an email <laughs> oh no essentially and that hurt my feelings. I think that was the first time I was really genuinely hurt by something. And, you know, I like I I didn't know that your friends were capable of like really hurting you that way. No, they're not your friends. Yeah, and I was just like, wow, that's that sucked. So I had to start over again. And so I kept the name Blackboard, and then I met this guy Matt Massolini. I think he responded to like a like a MySpace ad or something. He would know more about this story than me, but. Uh, I think it was, yeah, he was trying to do a MySpace ad and he was a fan of Dave Grohl and that's all I needed to hear, you know, because at that time I was really into Nirvana and that style of drumming. And I'm like, oh, I want to start a band kind of kind of like that, but different. And then I met up with him and he was playing with another guy that he thought was kind of a bit of a flunky and he wanted to hang out with me a little, little bit more, I think, for whatever reason. And so we started a band. We changed the name to To The Sea. And we had a couple different bass players. And I think at that point, To The Sea was kind of, it was like if Dave Grohl played drums for Placebo and Mick Jones from The Clash was sitting in. Yeah. It was kind of, that's, that's a good. That's kind of how it was. If, if I remember correctly, that's kind of how the, that's kind of how it felt. We had these, this huge propulsion of drums coming from Matt. I remember standing in front of his drum kit every night and just feeling the fucking wind from his kit. Yeah like hitting the back of my legs and mm-hmm. I'm like, Jesus, like I didn't know it was, yeah, I was like standing by, it was like, that was a good band. I dug that band. Yeah. That was the and, first band and that's when I met playing. you. Yeah. That's when I met you and Sean. Cause it was just, <clears throat> I hadn't, Matt was such a heavy hitter that I was like, fuck, I didn't know you could do, do hit drums mm-hmm. that, that hard. He, he got the nickname world's strongest drummer after that. <laughs> and I think uh, Mark from seven car pileup gave us that name and, uh, or gave him that, little nickname and yeah yeah and we just we played that around it was fun and had no direction had no idea how to do anything that we were doing it was just let's play gigs and i i remember like booking we'd booked like two shows in a night and we'd play one gig and go leave to play the other looking back at it i'm like what the fuck was i thinking like that's so rude like exactly like i'm like i remember some i remember some promoter telling me like I was like, I was like, all right. I was. We played our set. I'm like, okay, cool. We're gonna go. We have another gig. And he looked at me like really upset. Like, you have another gig tonight. Like, yeah. like, like I really offended him. Yeah, there's and etiquette. I, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't fucking know that that you weren't supposed to do that. I, I'm like, well, it's across town. What's the difference does that make? No one's coming to either one of these shows anyway. <laughs> you know, no, no one ever came to our shows. They still don't. You yeah. know, other than my girlfriend and and uh, some of her friends, which I'm very grateful for. You know, and it's so, so I think I've been constantly trying to struggle to find an audience that probably doesn't exist in this town. And that's why I probably tour so much or try to tour as much as I do. But anyway, so I started to the sea with Matt and that went on for about a year and then just series of, you know, Matt moved to a different part of town. We started rehearsing there. We had to get a new bass player, which we did. And then, uh, we, we played, a show. I think our last show was at Last Exit, because Matt 
was moving to LA at that point. And so I was like, great, like that's an end to the band. You know, I'm losing my favorite drummer, <laughs> you know, and again, had to start over again. And then, so from to the sea, it became, uh, I, I started the combat medic out of that. And that's when I met Aaron Halmerson when he was 17 years old and, and through a, again, a series of bass players later. Did he play with Con- or To the Sea, like a shortened version of To the Sea? Yeah, because I tried to keep the To the Sea name after Matt left. But Aaron, being a completely different drummer, brought a different dynamic. And with that, we just had to change the name. Okay, so that's when you went just kind of different direction, but yeah. the same direction. Yeah, we kind of, we still played some of those old, yeah. you know, To the Sea songs, which a Song for Alice was a To the Sea song for a long time you know it, we played it in in to the sea and then it just kind of changed a little bit more and then I, and we got Aaron it was Aaron's first band you know and now he's doing really great things on his you know on his own with the other bands that he plays in but yeah he was a 17 year old kid that I, again I don't I think I found him on MySpace as well prop 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 probably charmed his way into my band <laughs> I saw him it might have been the fail no we the quicksand the last time I saw him was at the quicksand show okay, okay. and I didn't even know who he was he was like <laughs> sitting next to me up in the balcony and I just could feel this dude like staring at me and I was like finally I looked over like you know what, what's your problem dude and he's like you don't know who I am do you and then I realized because he, he got bigger you know yeah yeah I was like oh Aaron I was like hey what's up man He's like, yeah, I saw Sean. Because there was something going on where they were at uh, Crescent. Mm-hmm. And then, then he came over afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I saw Sean outside. And he said, you were here. And we ended up sitting next to each other. Kind of yeah. random. Yeah. I'm um, sorry. Aaron is pretty random. I, I actually just saw him last or like last Wednesday. And uh, bumped into him at a fucking... Uh, had a show at Rips Bar, so I was like, he pops, he pops up, man. Yeah, he just shows up. He's just like, Ta-da! but anyway, so yeah. Then we had Aaron, and then I got, I wanted to add some hipness to the band. I was trying to go and run to more like a Clash style direction, and I just got Nick Ferratu yeah. on guitar from the Limit Club. Yep, and he added a lot of cool to the band. He no, added you know, a lot he, of pompadour. He played bass, actually. Yeah, he he he, he, bass, jo- he joined yeah. on bass. And uh, he added a lot of cool flair, and I learned a lot from him. And then, and then so after a while, Nick and Aaron went and, and started Manual Sex Drive with Monty, and that became its own thing. And then uh, Ian played bass with us for a while, and yeah, so we just we just it just there was always some reason to keep something going. And I think part of it was I never really had any really direction. To, I, had, I had no real focus on anything because I think we I was I was into so many different bands and so many different influences that I couldn't keep something together yeah. because I was like oh I want, I want I knew I wanted to have a band where everybody could kind of play different styles I was really you know I'm like well I'm really into grunge and I'm also really into punk and I'm also really into placebo and the fucking mm-hmm. replacements and I just had music I have musical ADD and I wanted to play it all so I wanted to have players that could do all those things yeah, and make it move seamlessly. And then uh, To the Sea after, yeah, became Combat Medic, and then Aaron left, and then that's when I got Sean to fill in. Um, 
on drums once Aaron was no longer available. And by that point, we had gotten uh, Russ Hill on bass. And we did a couple shows still as... I'm trying to think now. Fuck, I can't... I, I, remember, I remember... Yeah, we did... There, there was at least a couple shows. There was at least a handful of shows with Russ on bass and Aaron on drums and myself as a trio... And then that, beca- and then Combat Medic got a little bit more serious once Sean, once 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 we got Sean in, into the mix. And it's funny, Sean told me a story a while back that I never, I, apparently, I never told him he, he was in the band. He was just yeah. supposed to be like a fill-in, <laughs> and I never, I never, and I'm like, huh? I guess we kind of skipped over that part. Yeah, no, that that definitely was the the feeling for a while. I was like, I, I'm just, I'd show up until. Whenever he says he needs me, I just show up. He's like, I don't know. I think what it was, I think for a while it was like we just stopped. At, we stopped looking for fucking drummers. Like we stopped, <laughs> It worked. It, it you know we just because we we after Aaron left, we had to keep it going. So we had Sean, you know, to fill in for a little bit, and we were auditioning drummers, Russ and I, but we couldn't find anybody. I think we didn't even really know what we wanted anyway. But Aaron has had a certain style that was hard to replace, mm-hmm. and then I remember we played a show a show with Sean. And Jed came up to me afterwards. I think we, I think we were playing at uh, Time Out Lounge. No, not Time Out Lounge. Uh, Tempe Tavern. And Jed Foster from Bittersweet Way came out and was like, that's your fucking drummer right there. And I was like, huh, really? You think so? I don't know. Because I was used to Aaron's technical, like, te- technicality. Yeah. And Sean just has an anchor, you know? And I was like, well, he's like, no, you need him to be the anchor so you can do all that guitar swirly stuff that you do, that I was doing at the time. And I'm like, eh, I didn't see it that way, but he was right, you know. And I think that's probably why I forgot to ask Sean if he wanted to join. <laughs> so you thought it was a, a done deal. So. Yeah, I thought it was an unspoken thing, but because I, I just kept asking, he kept saying yes. So I, was, you know, and yeah. it's just I. And then I think when he finally brought that up, like four years later, <laughs> and another band later, and, and another band later, I'm like, oh yeah. So finally, I was like. Well, you want to join the band? <laughs> I had to formally finally ask him. And you have to sign this contract. Yeah, now you have to sign this contract. No, but uh, so Sean has enabled me since having Sean in behind the kit for me for the last 7 years, as you know. He just his personality and his conviction and just his style just is very he's resolute. Yeah, you know he's he's resolute in every aspect of his personality and his life and his and, and his playing. Yeah, we're and, that's why we've always been a two piece. We always go back to being a two piece because yeah. we're you know we we're on the same wavelength. Yeah, and it's he's just very he's it's easy to jump on his wavelength. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I hold him to a very high regard to where I value his opinions in the band more than others to a degree um because sean will tell you one, one way or the other yeah you know and so yeah so uh, after so when you know combat medic was was chugging along and then i started writing songs that didn't quite fit combat medic but i put him in my back pocket and i kind of my back pocket got really full <laughs> and i'm like well i need to like kind of put these songs somewhere so i my intention was to divert the combat medic temporarily to a solo project called ghosts in the willow. Mm-hmm. I asked Sean to play drums and I, but I wanted it to be like an all-star band, so to speak of the, of the music scene. That's why Jess Pruitt plays bass on the record. That's why Jed Foster plays guitar on it, 
on the the Missing Persons album I'm I'm talking about, and Brad Wandry from the Riveras plays bass on it, and Sean, you know, I meant it to kind of be in my version like these were my friends and these are like people that I respect as mus- musicians and I thought that cool this would kind of like advertise itself and it didn't go that way but that's all right but Sean was always there yeah you know so then it just became a lot after we did the record release show for Ghost in the Willow it felt very comfortable there was a new diversity to it you know it felt more comfortable than combat medic did I think and I kind of surprised myself with that so it wasn't until that that I think all my pieces kind of all like my past and the bands I was in, it wasn't till ghost in the willow that it just kind of clicked Yeah, in my head. So, so when that first started that project, you were more solo, mm-hmm. but then you always had the, the full band in your back pocket. Yeah. What do you, what do you prefer? I prefer the full band. Full band. Um, the solo is great because you don't have to worry about other people's schedules, mm-hmm. but it's a completely different, thing i mean i all, all the tours i've done have been up to this point as a solo acoustic yeah, artist to tour. but the records were always full band records so eventually it kind of felt bad shopping two different things mm-hmm. you know two different versions of the same coin and so my goal for 2020 for this year is to make ghosts in the willow more of a full band entity okay and um by by having us at least a core lineup of people and there have fill-ins for different members and things when schedules don't line. Because the one thing I learned from Combat Medic was if I found it frustrating to turn things down or try to schedule things and, and somebody couldn't do it because mm-hmm. of scheduling. So you, so that therefore we none of us could do it. Yeah. And I always found that very frust, frustrating. So from the onset and the get-go was very, you know, nobody's permanent unless you want to be. And if you want to be there's still going to be some flexibility because I'm going to want to put this on the road. Yeah. And there, there can't be any hard feelings of replacing somebody temporarily. And every, so far everybody's understood that and it's worked really, really well. Yeah. The hard part is finding people to cover for other people, but I have two different bass players that I kind of reach out to. Sean's always been the core. There's only been one gig where I had to use a fill in for him. And that was pleasantly awkward. I guess I had to hire a dude and I think, I think the only reason he couldn't do it is because Gomi had to gig the same night, but more often than not, it always worked out. Yeah. So, but it was one gig that I couldn't turn down opening for my friends in Spanish love songs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I can't, I I can't say no to that one. So we got a fill in and it worked, but it wasn't Sean. Yeah. (laughs) It was a Gomi show because I remember that was in the phase where we weren't playing out. And I yeah. was like, normally I'd be like, go play the show. Mm-hmm. And he said the same thing. He's like, no, he's like, we haven't played in forever. He's like, we need to play the show, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, I think Sean has always operated on very much a like first come first serve. Yeah. So sort, of, sort of thing. I, I don't think, I don't think he kind of, I can't speak for him, but at least the impression I get is if you book, a, if you Mark book a gig with him first, that I haven't heard about yet. And I tell him, Hey, can we, can you just like, Oh no, I, I have this. Yeah. That's just what it is. Yeah. I think the, go- and it hasn't, it hasn't reared its ugly head yet. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we've, and I, part, part of that is because, you know, I had my issues mm-hmm. 
and we weren't doing stuff. So we'll see how this year goes. <laughs> we'll yeah. See how this year goes. Because yeah. you plan on ramping it up, and so do we. Yeah, and that's the so thing. Like, we'll be I, um, scheduling together. And it yeah. may be where we just have to play on the same night together. Right. And that's totally fine. I mean, I don't want to stretch Sean out too thin. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's something that's always good to communicate with the, you know, it's, you know, because we, you know, our guitar player is also in No Lungs, you know, so it's kind of like, I feel like I have to go to, you know their band leader like yeah okay can i can i can i borrow the kid for a gig you know what i mean yeah. so but it so far it's been okay and um yeah like i'm trying to book a, a may tour with the band and i know sean can't do it because he has he has work yeah so i already got a guy covering for him on that you know as far as after beyond may i have no idea you know what the touring schedule is going to gonna look like yeah um but anyway so yeah like i prefer the going full band and even now we're kind of shifting again to being a little bit more like in that kind of you know punk rock songwriter type thing like basically like like a the paul westerberg of punk rock (laughs) yeah and or with a little springsteen on top but no like so yeah sean's always kind of operated on like a first come first serve type thing as far as i've yeah felt you, you know and what he says goes kind of thing. But he knows that, you know, there's a substitute. They're not going to be as good as him. Yeah. It's not going to be as, you know, right, I guess you could say, or comfortable, I think. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, that's what I have to do to keep pushing the thing forward. Yeah. You know. That's yeah, understandable. All right. Well, let's get into, since we've, we kind of went over the years of music, let's get into a live song. Let's get into an old one. Sure. Um, what's the name of the song you're going to do? Uh, this is called Swings at Your Hips. It's from uh, the Missing Persons album, which was the first Ghost in the Willow EP. And I did a three-song EP a year before that, which that song is on. So this song has kind of been recorded twice, you know. Yeah. But I consider Missing Persons kind of the first EP. And you've changed so. the song up a little bit, too. So Not really. No? Not, no, no. I think, no, no, this one's stayed the same. Yeah, hmm. on both versions, I think. Yeah, maybe yeah. I'm just hearing the diff- the acoustic version and the live version. Yeah, no, it's it's. I think the difference is is that I play the bridge. That's that's what I'm getting at. The yeah, bridge is a little be- different. Yeah, the bridge is different because I play the guitar solo there, mm-hmm. and it's four it's four times through. But for acoustic purposes, I can't play that progression four times through because it sounds boring. Yeah. So I just cut it in <laughs> in half. Okay. So this is uh, this is swings at your hips. All right. Cool. Shakes and you're a shake. 
So that sounded great. Um, Thanks. I dug, I dig that song. So since we kind of got into you playing there, mm-hmm. um, over the years I've noticed you've sought out different sounds, different tones, mm-hmm. um, even your playing, uh, influences in your playing. So what? Uh, walk me through the years of who influenced you. I know you did a little bit of replacements. Mm-hmm. and So – Modern, like when you started switching up from Fender guitars to Gibson guitars. Oh what, yeah, yeah. You know, what was your influence in, in changing? Well, up? I, I was a, I was always a Gibson fan when in my as a teen teenager. Like I said, my dad got me an, an Epiphone Les Paul standard when I was sixteen, and I loved that guitar. And then in two thousand three, doesn't Christmas of 02 and oh three, my grandfather just gave me a check for like 400 bucks or something for Christmas and my birthday that year. And I said, all right, cool. So I went to Guitar Center to buy something and I saw this black Fender Telecaster on display. And I thought, oh, that looks cool. I think I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I bought it. And then that kind of became my main guitar for so the is next... is that the famed Gill? Yeah, yeah, that's the, fa- all the the one with all the stickers and bash marks and everything, throwing it around. That thing is hitting more decks than <laughs> than, than a sailor. But I... Uh, and I loved the Telecaster because you can abuse it. And the way I played at that time was a very... I was fighting with it all the time. Mm-hmm. And 
getting as much out of the sonically out of the instrument as I could. And it worked really, really well for a very long time. And I still love the Telecaster. I never get really got into strats, although I love the way strats look. But the Telecaster is my favorite Fender guitar. And it was just home for so long. And then I then after that I started to, when I once I got into Gaslight Anthem, I just kept seeing pictures of Brian Fallon playing a Les Paul Jr. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I wonder what that's about. That's kind of cool. It's it's a Les Paul shape. It's a lot cheaper. You know, wonder where I could find those. You know, so that piqued my curiosity on the Les Paul Jr. And then I found out Paul Westerberg played Les Paul Jr. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, now I now I, if Westerberg has one, then then now I really got to fucking find one. And I found one on eBay. I found a '93 Junior. So yeah, my OCD kicked in. So I was like, okay, let me learn the history of the Junior because obviously I can't get like a '50s Junior. And then when were they made? How often were they made? What were they made of? What what were the specs different of them? And then I got a '93 Junior that needed work. It was a player grade. The neck was sanded down. So I had someone refinish the neck. The pickup was routed for a humbucker, but I said, fuck that. And I put a P90 <laughs> back in it. And I had a Les Paul. I had a I had a proper Gibson. I think yeah. that was my first. Yeah, that 93 Junior was my first actual Gibson that I owned. And it, it wasn't all that dissimilar from my Tele because it had the thin neck as well. It was a 93, so yeah, it had a thin Les Paul Classic-shaped neck, but the nut was very narrow as well. And it didn't... But by that point, Combat Medic was kind of already on its way out, and I was already starting to to start on Ghost in the Willow. So I figured, well, new band, new new, new guitar, new, new, sound, new guitar tone starting mm-hmm. from the ground up. So I kind of retired the Telecaster at that point, reluctantly, albeit reluctantly. And I started playing the Junior. So I had the 93 Junior. And then one day I was at, I was in LA with, with my dad. And we went and saw, we went to visit Norman's Rare Guitars. And they had a 2010 Junior, which had a slightly fatter neck and a different P90 sound. So I bought that. And then I had two juniors, and 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 then that became that's those are the two guitars I used heavily on missing persons, and then the Telecaster for like specific little things. And then, you know, then I started to kind of really get into Gibson at that point. Like, was that about the time you switched from Fender to Vox? Uh, no, the Vox came later. Um, up to that point, I was still playing the Fender Hot Rod Deluxe amp, which is a workhorse of an amp. It's a great amp. Yeah. Like, I recommend everybody own one. You know, it it's it's just a, it that amp worked really well with Fender guitars, but as soon as I plugged a Les Paul into it, it was too much headroom for me for what I was trying to 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 do. Some people love that sound, I kind of didn't. The headroom and the low end, no matter how much I tried to like lower the low end on the amp. What are you talking about? Yeah, blasphemy. Well, yeah, I know. Well, you don't have a bass player. <laughs> treble what? You know? <laughs> yeah, treble what? No, that goes to zero. So even when I'd put all the EQs at noon. And plug in a Les Paul, it just sounded so fat. And yeah. I wasn't getting any clarity. I wasn't getting any articulation. But that was after I had already gotten my dream guitar, which was the Gold Top R7. So I had the Juniors. And then uh, I had, yeah, I, was, I loved the Junior. I still love a Junior. 
and then I feel like I had a bunch of other guitars in the meantime, but I think it was I was still playing the the juniors, and then a buddy of mine had picked up in trade a bunch of guitars. Like he had a but you know he had a bunch of slightly vintage guitars that he traded to a shop and. In the trade, he said, "Okay, I'll take that guitar, that guitar, that guitar, and and then some cash," because he sold like a couple of vintage Les, like '70s Les Pauls. So he got this um, gold top, and at that point, I was shopping around for a gold top because I really liked the way they looked. I don't know why or how I came across the idea of having a gold top. I think Mike it was might have been Mike Ness. It's very possible because my buddy that I was talking to with this is a Mike Ness fan. 70s yeah as well yeah the, he had the deluxe 70s and it just yeah so then the lust started to want to get a gold top and then i had bought on reverb a 2000 les paul standard gold top limited edition and it was it was originally it was owned previously by a by a, a touring musician and it was also originally owned by the dude from fastball oh nice yeah so it had a little bit of provenance and I loved it. It thought it looked cool. I thought it sounded great. It was a Les Paul standard, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll maybe, maybe I'll mod it a little bit. And th- so I had that. Didn't really get a chance to play with it live though. And then I sold it because I think I was going on tour, so I needed money. So I sold it to a guy in Canada. He was out here in Arizona visiting. <laughs> sold it to him. I reluctantly regretted it because it had a real lot of patina on it, really yeah. aged really well, nice thick neck, and so you like those thick necks. That's where I started the thick neck. Yeah, see, I'm like, the '60s. Yeah, and neck, yeah. and I didn't realize that until once I started playing those thick necks on the standard, it it immediately made my hands more comfortable, hmm. and I didn't know I was uncomfortable before that. It was like all of a sudden, oh, my hand's not cramped or I'm not stuck in this position or it just really filled out. So then that became the obsession with the the thick neck. Then my buddy got this R7 gold top in a trade and I had bought another gold top at that point. I had on layaway after a few months, I had bought a 2011, I think, Les Paul Traditional, which also has the thick neck. Mm -hmm. And... I had him, my buddy, swap out the pickups on it, and, I, and he was like, and I was like, well, if you're gonna swap the pickups, I needed, I need another guitar for gigs and stuff. And so he let me borrow. He said, well, here, I just got this R7 in a trade. It's also a gold top. Try, try the, try the, try this out. So I took it home and just fell in <laughs> love with that guitar, and it's been my main guitar ever since. It's a 2012 R7 gold top with the Burst Bucker pickups. And it's stock, and it's got a fat, comfortable neck. It's vintage spec. It's got patina on it. It just, it, it just. Be, it was the first time I felt a guitar that immediately became like a like an extension of me. It was no longer a tool to get out a thing or to get out an emotion. It became a part of me at that point. Yeah. And 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 I had never felt that way with a guitar before. And I've been playing guitar for so long at this point. Before that, they were just tools to me. Mm-hmm. And then now it was just, it became something that I lusted, you know, for. And then I was like, I can't, I got to have this good guitar. And there's, and the, the custom shop guitars are expensive, you know. They're not, they're, they're not as cheap as your 
two thousand dollar Gibson, you know? Cheap. Yeah, I was yeah say, right. As That's cheap what I meant as, that as a very tongue in cheek, yes. like you know. Ridiculous. So my my buddy was like, "Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you trade me this Les Paul traditional that I'm working on? Why don't you trade me this plus some cash? And it's and it's and it's yours. If you love it so much, it's got to be yours then." So I'm like, done. <laughs> yeah. So I so I keep it. So he kept the he kept the Les Paul tra- traditional, and I gave him some money on top of that, and I got the R7, and couldn't have been happier since. And that's what you're playing still. And that's what I'm playing still, and th- because of that switch and you know, to that guitar, I I. I think maybe I had bought the amp before that. I can't remember, but anyway. So when I started, when I switched from the Fender Telecaster to a humbucker style guitar, such as the Les Paul, you know, your tone changes immediately. So I, so when I was playing through my regular rig through the Fender Deluxe amp, all of a sudden my tone was too fat, and I couldn't tame it down. I couldn't, or at least I couldn't tame it down comfortably. Once again, what? <laughs> Too fat? Yeah, it was. It's Come a different. On. It's a. It's a different. It's a. It's a different. It's that that Fender fatness that everybody loves so much, <laughs> that I that all of a sudden didn't work for me, and I had and then my buddy Dylan from Spanish Love Songs, uh, had just gotten a Fender endorsement at the time, and he was playing a Vox AC30, and I had we had opened for them a few months before that. At, at Rebel Lounge, I think, and he was playing the AC30, and I was like, wow, that guitar tone sounds great in the back of my head, not knowing that I would own it a couple months later. I was like, oh, man, this this that, that tone of those humbuckers, because he was playing a Fender Telecaster Deluxe with the humbuckers, or, or the, the, the uh, wide-range ones. I said, well, if he can get a humbucker to sound like that through a Vox, that's the sound I want. So then eventually he talked to me and was like, yeah, I, I just got this Fender endorsement, and so I can't play my Vox anymore. So if you want, I'll sell you the Vox. And so I think I got, with, with the road case, so he sold me the Vox AC30 with a road case for 600 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I drove out to LA to meet up with him, just to crash at his pad, bought the amp from him, and came home, and it's been my amp ever since. Have yeah. you have you played through any other British amps like High Watts or No, because I've never they're hard to find out here. And I yeah. I, I, remember, I remember wanting to try High Watts because that's that's what Pete Townsend played, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah, that'll be my next purchase. Yeah, the, the High Watts. High Watt. Yeah, they're just. I think with D-103 the AC thirty, like, like being thirty watts, I feel like that's all you need. Yeah, because the Fender was forty watts, and how many times you got to, you know a sound guy tell you to turn down. You know, before before yeah. you're playing on three and you're not getting any tone out of it. I right? just bought a Universal Audio Ox box okay. uh, that has an attenuator in it, and it's look it up if you haven't. Okay, um, that's what I'll be using on the new recording. Oh, sweet! I'll be yeah. I should like because of the Vox, I started to get into pedals more. That I I never was a pedal guy before. Yeah, I always played that because I loved that amp distortion that the Fender had. So I never needed a distortion box and now all of a sudden Vox being the way they are chimey and compressive yeah at least the boost yeah at least the boost so that's what I did and and then all of a sudden it was just like all the pieces fell together and it yeah. was just like Mwah. yeah I'm digging it. I'm digging the sound you got going on I know 
people joked around like you know where's the telecaster yeah for a lot, yeah just pruitt still is like wow i didn't know a telecaster looked like that yeah. <laughs> you know? i can't complain because i've always been a, you know you know me i've always been a gibson guy yeah yeah We've done so, one show where i played the fender and that's because we did a 20 minute nirvana set yeah on the halloween well yeah show. you have to play nirvana on a fender yeah and, and it's so, actually Cobain. Oh yeah, it was Jack the Cobain Wire, so. model. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> Even better. I had to do it. And was and was funny. I like, I got the R7, and that satisfied my tonal want. So so like from so now it's like I still love Gibsons even more, but now I'm trying to figure out like well what else what what else can I add to the arsenal that's still a Gibson? So I just bought a 335. Yeah. Um, I got a great deal on that. That was a that was. I'm gonna, you're gonna have to be deal. my broker. I'm gonna need you to be my broker to find <laughs> I all just, these deals. You I get. find shit. You have to. You have to look constantly. It's, it's a lot of patience, you know. And you just like you just have the cash on hand when they pop up. It's a combination. Like yeah, I sometimes I find deals where I'm like cash poor, yeah. and, and, I, and I'm like, what? <laughs> like that's going for that? Like of course. And then when I have dough, I can't find what I want. Yeah. You know, when, what when I have part my, of my body can I sell? <laughs> right, and and I do the, the whole streets, and I do the whole pawn shop thing. So things come in and out of the pawn shop to help fund other purchases. Yeah. So I think I own like nine guitars, but I don't have any more than like two on me at any one time. <laughs> you, know? you need at least two. Uh, yeah, and, and you need I, a main and a backup. Yeah, I so I, I have my R seven and my J forty five are like the two that I always have on hand. Yeah, and, and everything else kind of comes and goes. As I need it, but so I bought the so yeah because I had I had to pawn a a Les Paul classic to buy the three thirty five, <laughs> you know. Did you get the classic after you played mine? No, I've I th- it was around the same time. Around the same, around time. the same time, it was before I got the R seven. I knew I wanted a Les Paul, mm-hmm. but I didn't really know it wasn't hip to neck shapes yet. Yeah, and then once like, after you play an R seven and it's comfortable, it makes everything else really hard. Hmm. It, like I can't play my Fender now because it just feels like a pencil to me now. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, and it, and it, and even going to a Les Paul Classic, it's comfortable, but it's still thin. It's the sixties neck. Yeah, yeah, it's that sixties neck prof, 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 profile, and it just that R seven ruined me for other get get other guitars. It's like great now I have to have fat neck, you know everything. Mm-hmm. So I had to look up what what other Gibsons have a fat neck that I'd be in, 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 interested in. And one is the the fifty four Les Paul Custom mm-hmm. reissue. That's my next. Once I get that, I'll be checking a lot of boxes, and I won't be good guitar hunting for a long time. After yeah, with that. with fifties and seventies, yeah, you're gonna find a lot of the fat necks. Well, the seventies ones, I think I found were really, were really thin. Really? Yeah, the seventies ones I, I always found were, were very like, late seventies. Nah, the standards. The standards the is standards. when they, by the time they put the standard out in the late seventies and early eighties. Those got more of a fatter style, yeah. but the seventies were all like the Les Paul Del- Deluxe, the Custom, and the there was a Pro model in there. But they every one I've felt always had like a razor thin neck on it. Hmm. But I think that was just the just the in vogue at the time. Yeah. So I have to go for all the fifties reissue stuff, which isn't cheap. No. So it's like great now my hands have <laughs> have expensive fucking taste. So yeah, like my next one I want to get. Uh, on the bucket would be a f- f- 54 custom reissue with the Alnico P90 on, on, on it. And it has a fat neck as well. So I think between the gold top, the 335 and the custom and the telly, that's it. Like, yeah. Like, that's like, that's all you need for now, for now, for now. <laughs> Until it's like, great. I'm going to sell all of them so I can get a vintage one. 
until you hear a new band that, that influences you. You're like, I need that sound. No, no, I think I'm kind of, I think I've hit the too old to be influenced anymore. See, that's where I'm at. I'm too lazy to <laughs> seek other sounds. It's like I have my own sound, I think. Yeah, once you find it, you stick with it. And I think um, that's kind of, I think I kind of reached that point with it. You know, I can do the Westerberg stuff on the gold top. I can do uh, pretty much anything I want. It's very versatile. It does chimey, you know. Yeah, to me, it's almost like writing songs. It's like I'm influenced by certain bands. Like I could be on a certain song, I can be influenced by another band, but it sounds nothing like the other band. For sure. And because it's the same thing with tone. Sometimes the influence could just be how they do something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think now I find more influence in bands of their business ethic or how they put out okay. a record or how they t- promote it, mm-hmm. you know? So I'll be influenced on, by a band in that way now, not so much the sound the of it. The songwriting part of it. Yeah, the songwriting part of it. It's just kind of, well, this is about as good as I'm going to get. Yeah. Without... See, I, on the songwriting process, I can be influenced uh, like by a band by Soundgarden, but mm-hmm. it sounds nothing like Soundgarden. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not singing about snakes and dogs. <laughs> I kind of, you know, he was one. Chris Cornell was one of those lyricists that I never dug into as a lyricist, but but also because I always thought of lyrics as being secondary to a certain degree. Yeah, I'm the same way. And so I kind of like want to know what all those little metaphors are now. Like 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 like, is he yeah. really talking about riding a snake, or is that a, or is that like a euphemism <laughs> for for something? Well, you where know? I'm getting at with that is it's the same thing with tone. Like I can be influenced by, I don't know just throwing a bit like local age mm-hmm. but my sound is nothing like local age right you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like yeah because like i love dean DeLeo's guitar tone from stp mm-hmm. but i can't pull that off yeah you know what i mean so it's just that's just his tone that's the way he sounds and i i think i tone hunt a little bit because i feel like that helps me write new songs mm-hmm. so i'm writing songs based around tone yeah you know? i hear you on that um it's funny because going all the way back to the '90s recording and and you know early stuff, and I'm like, well, they're like, well, what do you want it to sound like? You know, and I throw immediately throw out Bad Motorfinger. I'm like, I want to sound like this, right? But not realizing that the gear I have sounds nothing it's, like that. Yeah, you know, it's, and the, it's more social distortion, prison bound. Yeah, it's like okay, <laughs> if Kim Thale was to play Mike Ness's yeah. rig. <laughs> Yeah, would it still sound the same? No, I don't know. It, I don't know. It, I think that would sound cool. I think I think you know. I I've, the the more I read about guitar players, cause I never really gave a shit about guitar players. Like my focus was always like songwriters yeah. and emotion. So it's only been the last couple of years I've actually kind of paid attention to guitar players by going back to like Dean DeLeo as a guitar player or Paul Westerberg as a guitar player or you know Kim Thale. Listening listening to these guys that were my heroes, but from a different perspective mm-hmm. and. Everybody talks about, you know, it's not the gear. It's, you know, you could put, you know, Slash on a Squire Strat through a practice amp and he's still going to sound like Slash. Yeah. And that's... Totally it won't sound like Slash, but... I think, and and it it does, I don't know, I'm still trying to... I feel like no matter what gear you buy, it's not really going to make you play better per se, but it'll make you play differently. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll definitely, I think... It'll it'll definitely change how you play. Well, different guitars, different, different amps, guitars, uh, yeah. respond to you know, how you hit those it, little how you attack. Yeah. that when you play. So, you know, if you're gonna bite down on something, a Fender's, you know, a Fender Bassman's gonna sound different than you know a Marshall. Oh, for sure, like or whatever. And and I'm glad I got the Vox because I was gonna look at getting Marshalls, but the problem with Marshalls is that they sound so great to do one thing. 
that if you're going to throw pedals on it, you're basically it's like my point is why would you put a boutique overdrive pedal plugged into a Marshall when the Marshall that pedal is supposed to be emulating what that Marshall sounds like anyway? Yeah, depending on what pedal you're using. I, I, I've had a sun, uh, 100 watt super lead mm -hmm. and that thing was amazing because it's just a matter of how you have the, the amp set up, mm -hmm. you know, treble all the way down. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether you're jumping the channels, right. Cause you're getting that clean. And that's the thing like Marshall's like Marshall's I, I needed an amp that could do clean as well as hold up a gain. Yeah. And the Vox, I figured, well, if it can do a good clean sound, then I can do a pedal base gain around that. Yeah, and I'm I'm not in no way am I dissing the Vox. I no, love, no, no, as no, you know, no, I love absolutely. British amps. I think I, I think them. I think Voxes don't get enough credit. Yeah. To my degree, I think they're kind of pigeonholed as being like a clean Beatles amp or something yeah. like, like that. But they the can, only thing you know? that stuck for me uh, as far as the Voxes is they do break down. They so do. If you're a touring. Yeah. I the, the the tubes do on this yeah. particular one, and I was warned that when I bought it. Dylan told me he's he's like, yeah, you're gonna ha like he's like I change the tubes on this thing once a year. Yeah, because it's like just whether whether it needs it or not, because it just it it'll just it'll eat through the, it'll it eat through them. it eats through, through 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 the tubes. I think when he sold it to me, it inadvertently had already started eating through the tubes, so so I had to change tubes anyway. And I'm thinking I might have to now because I don't play in the top boost channel. I play in the in the normal channel, mm -hmm. and, all my, and all my pedals go through that. But even when I'm don't have the pedals on, I hit a chord and it starts to like break up. Yeah, yeah, like not in a like it's 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 in a good way. It sounds like the gain's on, but it's not supposed to be. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So I may have to, but they're a pain in the ass to change in those amps. You know, that's why you have technicians you drop it off. I'm not there yet, but I don't play around with that stuff. I just, <laughs> I don't either. Like it's, but yeah, like, so I can, I think it's hunt kind of, application. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. Drop it off there. He's amazing. Um, cause someone was telling amps, me I, when, when I was recording with the amp with, with the Vox, uh, the producer, Elijah Newman was like, well, if you're eating through tubes, that's probably an indicator of something else that's wrong with it, yep. not necessarily. Capacitors, weird, yeah, transformers. So tra yeah, I think he, so he got into all that, and I'm like, that's foreign language to me, but you're probably yeah. right. If you go to Hunt, mm -hmm. and he's cool because he doesn't charge you for something you don't need. Mm -hmm. Like, because I dropped it off for the tubes and stuff, because mm -hmm. I've been, you know, we've been touring, we played forever, and I hadn't changed the tubes since, you know, like a year or two after I had the amp, and I've had it since like 2000, so it's been a long time. He's like, these tubes actually aren't that bad. He's mm -hmm. like, one was off bias. The other one was close. He's like, so I just, I got them all ramped up to where they need to be. He's like, you know. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's one thing I found out too, when I was researching these Voxes is that they don't need to be biased. You just buy uh, yeah, them. The, well, most, yeah. On the one, I, on the one I have, because the Fender had, you could bias it and all that. Yeah. But the Vox amp, this particular one, it's, you know, since it's not a vintage one or whatever, it. I was like, "What do I need? Do I need to have the amp service to be rebiased?" They're like, "No, just swap the tubes out. It's it's fine. It's not that kind of amp." They're like, yeah. as long, like as long as you you buy a pair of matching tubes, you're fine. You're good. Yeah. yeah the other mad amp, the newer mad amps have the self biasing, and you don't have to worry about that. But of course, the one I have because I did it custom mm -hmm. doesn't have a an effects out. Yeah, I, just, I, I don't need. What are you talking about? Yeah, and and you, and you have a million pedals on your board. Like me, <laughs> yeah. like even I, like I don't. I'm starting to feel guilty having so many pedals. I have two gain pedals, a tuner, and like a Grand Canyon effects delay pedal. 
I have like five distortion pedals. Yeah, I, um, yeah. So I'm like, I got two. You're like, I got. What I are all those go. pedals? They're all distortion pedals. They're all pedals. distortion pedals. <laughs> <laughs> I have different levels of distortion. I need man. Yes, and that's true. Like that's what I'm trying to realize. Oh, I need this type of gain for this yeah. song. And that, now that I'm dialing in songs, when you're getting spanning OCD. decades of music it's like you have all my hits yeah yeah you know you gotta have the, the sounds for everything like, that's why the wall's still on there yeah we, well we may play yeah a couple songs that need it's like well this is this is the swings at your hips tone and then yeah. and then this is the alice tone that's almost where yeah. you need like a switcher that you can program that stuff in yeah they have that now that that's too that's too I, i'm still a if all goes to hell i should be able to at least plug everything out and go straight into the amp yeah and get and get by you know I can't I mean? do it, but I agree. Yeah, it's like so. I think for me, I'm still rooted in that. If you're, if let's say your entire pedal board goes out, I want to be able to at least say fuck it, go right into the amp, crank it up, and still get tone, yeah. a good tone out of it. And your music lends to that too. It does. It it does. And I think I should probably be a little more creative with it, and maybe start doing more pedal stuff. But don't do it. Don't I, go down I, the rabbit I, I, hole. I, I, exactly. I don't. That's I've I, I've already gone down the Gibson rabbit hole. That's an expensive rabbit hole. You know, yeah, I could justify a two grand guitar, but I can't justify a three hundred dollar pedal. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. But you get what you pay for. That's true. I just bought pedals. a before we started recording the, this new record that we got coming out. Um, I bought a Benson uh, preamp pedal, mostly because it's made in Portland, mm-hmm. and, and I love Portland so much. So I'm like, I need some Portland on, on my pedal board. But then I started that we 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 gain stacked it with the OCD pedal, mm-hmm. and that's like my main guitar tone on the album. And then Sam, our guitar player, is playing uh, his Fender guitars. He has like a jazz master. So he's playing his jazz master into his pedal board into an orange head and a Mesa cab. Mm-hmm. And it works well for him, too. Yeah, he needs to get rid of that orange head and, and buy mine. Shh, don't tell him that. No, I, I want to tell him that. Oh, you do? Because <laughs> I want him to buy my orange. Yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah I he, think it would suit his sound It better. probably would. I think, it, he, you know, I can't. You know, Sam, if you're listening, you know, someone wants to sell you an orange, so. Yeah, there you it. go. It's not going to be cheap. And reasonably priced. Oh, reasonably priced? Reasonably okay. priced. I don't have a job right now. Oh, so okay. It's reasonably priced. You can take priced. advantage of my wanting and needing of selling there you go. my amp. Yeah, he's happy Plus, with the Plus, it just doesn't fit the color scheme of, oh, oh, the, the, you with know, your the green? stack. Yeah. The stack that we have there at the space. Yeah, he, uh, I, know, I think, yeah, this one, it's a tube orange, but I, I don't know which one it is, though. It's like an... It's like the OR. It's not. It's not the Crush series. No, it's like an. It's like an AD something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tube. I think his biggest complaint on it is that it does doesn't have a master volume. Yeah, I we talked about it at one of the shows. That, yeah, that, yeah, and I was like, I was like, no, this does all that. It even has a foot switch, so you can go from clean to oh, cool to distort yeah, it out. I, I think that'll probably really, you know, or maybe or maybe he can, if he times it right, he could probably sell his amp and then go buy yeah. yours and make what's well, there bucks. Sweet. It's there if he's interested. Right on. Well, you kind of touched on the new the new album a little bit. Let's let's play a song sure. off sure. that, and, and then we'll kind of dive into it a little bit. Yeah, and again, like the new record, you know, obviously I'm going to be playing an acoustic rendition of one of the songs here, but it's not indicative of how the record's how it's going to sound. But we're, I'm trying to go for more like a, a little bit more, like a little bit more of a straightforward kind of rock and roll punk rock sound kind of the way I'm trying to springboard off of our previous EP song for Alice and kind of go in that direction with the new record. So Alice kind of gives a little bit of a taste of what the new one's going to sound like. The new album is going to be called, uh, I was once a charming man. And I think I'm 
publicly announcing it here for the first time, actually, that that's what it's going to be called. Nice. So, yeah, it's called I Was Once a, Ch- a Charming Man, and uh, this song is called uh, Christmas Tinder. Cool. Once again, that sounded great. Thank you. Um, so yeah, let's dive into the new album a little bit. Um, I was lucky enough to sit in on one of the drum sessions. And yeah, that's right. Got to hear a little bit. Yeah. No, I'm excited for it. We um, we recorded it in just this past December at FC Studio with Derek Fish Engineering, and then my buddy Elijah Newman from Nashville came out to produce it. This is the first time we're going to do a record that has an actual proper producer on it. And uh, 
so we're pretty excited about it, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but what are the the general gist of what are the songs about on this album? Um I don't it's funny is I don't really put much thought into those things after the fact. I just kind of write and then to capture a story that I'm thinking of or extrapolate on an emotion that I have or remember something that might have happened to me when I was younger and kind of build a story around that. And for this particular record, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't really know. I was funny is to, to sidetrack, just to side off of that a little bit. When I was getting ready to have Elijah come out to produce the record, one of the things he asked me to do was, Hey, can you send me the lyrics? to the new songs. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, sure, cool. But I always handwrite my lyrics. I, I don't type them out. Uh, so th they've always been handwritten to me and I visually remember the words from how I wrote them on the page. Yeah, and it helps you. It helps, it helps me remember it, it yeah. you know, in a way versus typing them out. So anyway, I'm transcribing and typing out the lyrics to, this, to these songs to send to him and it's the first time I actually thought about, quote unquote, using air quotes here, thought about the lyrics for my songs because usually I just write them they paint pictures in my head mm -hmm. and I sing them and that's how they are yeah and to have to like write them out after sitting with them for so long I'm looking at my lyrics I'm like wow this is some dark shit yeah it's, <laughs> like, it's very uh I, I lost my train of thought but it it's Diving into the lyrics is very because I don't put a lot of thought into them. To be honest yeah. with you, I don't they put. They just pop up. They just pop up. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. Or what I'll do is I'll think of something, whether it's a breakup or an argument or a, or something I saw at a bar, mm -hmm. or like seeing somebody do something on the side of the street, you know. Or I'll think of a, a random line when I'm driving and I'll, and I'll jot it down yeah. and then I expand off of it later. I don't put, put much more thought into it beyond that. A lot, of this, a lot of my favorite songs I've written so far, all of them coincidentally, they kind of wrote themselves. Like Swings at Your Hips, it wrote itself. I didn't put too much thought into it. And Song for Alice wrote itself. I didn't put too much thought into it. Mixing the Wolf, same thing. Um favorite company same thing and then the songs that i have to kind of force oftentimes aren't my favorite songs hmm. you know but on this record having to type them out i was like man there's some dark shit here <laughs> that i didn't really realize because <laughs> we have a song on the new record called boundless that was a combat medic song for a minute and we brought it back into Ghost in the Willow because it kind of, and we, we never recorded it in the Combat Medic. So we kind of brought it forward into this one to try to pad up the newer songs that we were doing. And I always, and the song, I in my head when I sing it, I picture different things and I'm just kind of going through like almost two or three different paintings that I'm looking at in my head, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm not, necessarily in that in that song specifically unlike a lot of my other songs i'm not necessarily telling a story i'm i'm conveying an emotion or reaction to a painting i'm looking at in my head yeah and they're like three different paintings and i'm just basically trying to just 
capture the mood of what these paintings are in my head. And also the movie Gangs of New York. (laughs) (laughs) So there are some... With less trouble. With less trouble. And so I'm kind of... In my head, I was like, there's some lyrics in the song that reference um, the movie Gangs of New York with with Daniel Day-Lewis. And for some reason, that imagery of that film kind of evoked a feeling or a mental painting in my head mm-hmm. of like ships, old worldness, 19th century America juxtaposed against the emotion of fucking up in a relationship. Yeah. Two, three, two things that have nothing to do with one another and they kind of slam and collide in this one song lyrically and creates this very dark image that it I sets the mood. It sets. Yeah. It's a mood is what it is. It's a <clears> mood <throat> song. You know, the lyrics don't tell a story. They kind of don't really make any sense, but every line is its own thing. Yeah. To you, each line makes, it makes sense. Right. But it may not be connected. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and I when I was going, thing. when I was going over the lyrics with Elijah, he was kind of like, you know, asking about it. <laughs> and I didn't really know what it was until I was explaining painful, it to him. man. It Dissecting is. Dissecting each line. Yeah. Each and I, word. I never had to do that before. And, you know we talked about changing some lyrics here and there that we wound up not doing because it just, it took away from the brushstroke in my mind, mm-hmm. you know? And he was very cool with like, okay, that's, you Yeah, know. sometimes you can find like with the thesaurus, you can find another word yeah. that fits better. And we were trying to do that. And some of the songs like, like, no, I just can't, that would dumb it down if I did that. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want it to be that way. And he had his part, he had his points, he, he, you know, he had his, he had his arguments, you know, why, but at the end of the day, it was like, I just don't feel like it needs that, you know? Yeah. And he was cool with letting me kind of get, get, get by on that. And so, so yeah, so lyrically like that, I was like, wow, that's fucking out of nowhere. And then other, other newer songs on the record, like Christmas Tinder that I just played, um, they, I I can't I think I can't even really, um, it it this, thematically it's about it's about a friend of mine, um, that was kind of dating around around the Christmas time a couple of years ago, and they were 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 with somebody, but it wasn't quite. There was an age difference. It wasn't quite lining up for 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 them, but but it was good. And I just you know they would tell me this story of their relationship and 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 how it was kind of not falling apart, but it was just kind of doing its thing that relationships do, which is fall into reality, hmm. you know. And for some reason, I was very moved by their by them confiding in me this experience that they were going on that I, I use it as a blueprint for this song and I told them about it I was like hey I'm probably gonna you know because they never told me this person's name that they were dating <laughs> so I would always refer to them as Christmas tender hey how's how's Christmas tender doing mm-hmm. oh they're, they're they're doing fine blah 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 or like oh we kind of took a break or oh we kind of broke 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 up on this and I was like man that's a good album name you know Christmas <laughs> tender and then it just, as I was talking over with Sean, I was like, eh, maybe it doesn't sound like an album, but maybe it sounds like a song. So I kind of put 
so I titled the song that Christmas Tender, you know, about how you start a relationship and it's great, and then at some point it just kind of falls falls apart. And then even when you try to trust your instincts and trust trust your gut, that's from a high fidelity. It's from high fidelity. That line, yeah. you know, my guts have shit for brains. And I'm like, perfect. Let's throw that in there too, you know, to create that little imagery. Great movie, by the way. Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> really made a star out of Jack Black. See. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, so like, just you know, it's like I said. So these songs aren't necessarily about me. You know, they're they could I could take a little bit of influence from friends and things like that. And I always ask them, hey, is it cool if I do this? And they're usually like, oh yeah, it's fine. Whatever. You know, it's kind of like when a screenwriter writes a screenplay about a friend but changes the yeah, names changes the names around yeah it's kind of like that okay on 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 that particular song well, let's do another one let's sure. do another new one yeah um, this is uh shit i can't uh oh this is yeah this thing this one's called short on luck okay let's do it all right Don't worry of your black heart There's no need to overflow The beating at a false start And your father will always know You took it in the best stride Hoping your sister would never know That daddy had a bad side He kept hitting down below Whoa Whoa. 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 And growing up was alright Trading sticks and breaking bones And living in your own mind Finding freedom in every note But then you met a second heart Showed you left of the dial And spinning on that 45 You fought back with a microphone Whoa job thank you sounded really good thank you um, how many songs are on the new album uh, uh there's there's gonna be seven total there's so it'll gonna, actually be like an album 
like well, what, uh, Missing Persons was seven songs. It's a long I, EP. I still call it an, yeah, it's a long EP. What are, what's an EP? Seven to well, I think six technically to eight an EP songs? an EP is a minutes thing. Like it's a oh, time. Okay. It's a length of time. I thought it was like so you four could, to seven songs. Or no, like I think that's where it kind of conventionally. But I think what it is is like because you could have a twenty song EP if the whole EP fa- falls under like eighteen minutes or something. Really? Like that. Yeah. I didn't. I never thought about. I think that. I, I always th- thought it was. The traditional definition of, of of it is is based on a length of time. So that means like the Ramones, all of their stuff. Technically, you could you could, <laughs> could, could say those EPs, yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's seven songs and six are the full band. There's an acoustic song on it as well. One song I think is almost eight minutes long. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, we did a we did a version of. Um, back in Combat Medic, we had a song called "The Windshield," which is one of my favorite Combat Medic songs. And then somewhere at some point, we decided like, we wanted to play it again, but didn't want to play it the way we used to play it in Combat Medic. So we created this huge, long, dirge kind of version of it, mm-hmm. where it sounds like a like a ship about to wreck in slow motion. No. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So it, it when we when we demoed it, it was like six and a half minutes. And then when Sean and I decided to put BPMs and tempos to everything before we, rec- we recorded it, it was a little bit slower, and then I think when I got the rough mix recently, it was something like eight minutes long. <laughs> and I was like, Just "Fuck!" Out that way. Yeah, I'm like, it sounds epic. It sounds amazing. It sounds really huge. And then, it, but it, it, but to me, I think it's because I'm biased and I wrote it. I'm like, it doesn't feel like eight minutes. Yeah, but. Yeah, that can be a double-edged sword. It's one of those things where if you have people that listen to you, and like your stuff, it's mm-hmm. cool. But then if you get the casual fan, they're like, why the hell is this song still going? Right. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, well, ride the wave. And I like, feel like... that way with the new Tool album. It's like... And that's the thing, but there's so much going on in a Tool album. This is like yeah. three chords of like, you know... The same thing. The same thing a little bit. But it's thematic and emotional where I feel like if you're in a dark room, you know, with a candle smoking a cigarette, like it, it works. Yeah. You know? And uh, it's I mean, your music, man. It, it worked for it worked for Pink Floyd, and they didn't do too bad. Yeah, it worked for Dope Smoker Sleep. You know, they did a forty minute album. There with you one go. Song. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's just yeah. So it's there's it, this album is going to be very reflective of my musical ADD. That's for sure. Okay. It's you know we got some like pop punk Menzinger style stuff on there. Um, there's an acoustic jam. Uh, that song "Short on Luck" that I just did, w- the full band arrangement of that is also very sweeping and large, and you know, kind of, for lack of a better word, Coldplay-ish, I guess you could say. And then we have like one song that's totally sound like to me sounds like a Stone Devil Pilots riff, mm-hmm. and yeah, so it, it I don't, it, it, I think lyrically it carries a theme worthy of the name. I was once a, tr- a charming man, yeah, and. It's a thread that I guess to me makes sense, but it might not to other people, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, I can't write an album full of the same five songs anyway, six songs. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. So uh, am I. Whenever we get a finished product, I'll definitely throw it up. Absolutely. Thank you very much. At, you know, one of the podcasts or something. Maybe when Sean comes in. Yeah. We can, we can throw out something. Yeah, we can. Um, is there, are there any touring shows coming up that you're excited for? Yeah, we're doing a, like a four-day run in March. Uh, we're doing. Uh, we're supposed to. Hasn't been confirmed yet. But we're supposed to be on a, on a Phoenix show on the 18th of March, and then we're going to head over to San Diego on the 19th. 
then Vegas on the 20th, and then L.A. on the 21st of nice. March. And so I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if we're going to be playing any of the new material yet on that one. Uh, maybe one or two songs. But um, I'm kind of saving that for like a proper re- record release show where we play the whole album like front front, front to back. Yeah. And then uh, stuff stuff like, like that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And then in May, I'm lining us up a tour. Uh, to be on the road for about two weeks in May. And that'll have some new faces on it due to work schedules and stuff like that. So that'll be a slightly different lineup than than what I'm usually working with. But it'll be our first, probably our first proper full band tour because we've done a lot of -of out-of-town shows before. We've done a lot of like the Vegas-San Diego thing. Mm -hmm. and I, But I've always toured a lot by myself playing in places like San Francisco and Portland and then going as far as Chicago and back and doing full tours like that by myself that I want to do it with a band. So I'm taking the band out on the road this May for our first national tour, I guess you could say. Nice. Yeah. How about uh, local? Local we got this Saturday. I don't don't know when this is going to come out, but that January 25th show with you guys. Mm -hmm. And um, looking forward to that. And I think that might I'm doing a solo show in April. Okay. Uh, April 3rd at Time Out Lounge. That'll be an acoustic show with uh, the March Divide from Texas. And Bittersweet Way is going to be on that one, too. Oh, Jed or the whole band? The whole band. The whole band? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, the show on the 25th uh, is at the Cornish Pasty. Cornish Pasty Tempe, yeah, Yeah, on University. The original location. Yeah, the original location. We're playing with uh, El Googly, Diablo. What do you say they sound like? Uh, Dinosaur Junior? I like them musically. I th- uh, but yeah, I think it's I think yeah, it's like Dinosaur Junior with a little spaciness to it. Yeah. I dig there's those like, guys. There's there's like a space rocky kind of el- yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to call it, but it's like alternative. It reminds me a little like 80s alternative yeah, type of a sure. thing. Like I like it a lot. Yeah. Like you know, it's funny there's a lot of bands that we play with now that I'm like where were you guys like 15 years ago <laughs> when I when I was looking for a local band? Yeah, that we were doing like, this kind of stuff like this because all the bands I knew of were doing like fucking new metal and shit. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. So. Yeah, they're a cool band. So they're opening up the show. Uh, us, Gomi, and the Bittersweet Way is also playing, which they always put on a good show. It's gonna be the probably the loudest show I'll play this year. Yeah, <laughs> with, with, world, which with is all, odd. With all those bands. Pasty. Yeah. And uh, so that should be a good show. I'm looking forward to it. For um, sure. Yeah, then, uh, so yeah, I think, yeah, they got that. There might be a show in February that I don't, that I'm not confirmed on yet. And there, and then March, so yeah. And then May. Cool. Um, so you mentioned Portland a little bit. So Portland, yeah. sell me on Portland. Why do I need to go to Portland? Well, you, you don't need to go to Portland. I don't need to go to, you don't want anybody else to go to Portland. No, Portland's a horrible place. Uh, <laughs> it's a shithole. It's nothing but, uh, you know, strippers and vegans. Strippers <laughs> that are vegans. No, I'm just kidding. Well, that's true, but not in a bad way. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I love Portland, but it's it's become a little too Disneyland for me <laughs> late, lately. I used to, when I, when I, when I was going... 15 years ago it was it was still a little bit dangerous but cool yeah you know and i've kind of i've gone every year i've gone like three times every year in the last three or four i could say almost last since like 2013 actually since that goddamn portlandia show really (laughs) everybody started to want to move there now it's hip it's cool it's not as dirty anymore 
there's bright lights in, in dingy places now, and you can get weed legally. Yeah, and you always turn it into a show, so you Yeah, play. I got it. I always turn it into every every time I go now, it's like now I kinda have to go for a purpose now. Like yeah. I c I, I can't just go and visit for fun like I used to. Now it's like I'm able to just play a play a show while I'm here to get some sort of value out of it. But there's a lot of good music up there right now and, and like I just I just you know, I fell in love with it when I was young because it was different than Arizona and I didn't I felt completely comfortable there. The first time I went, I didn't know I was uncomfortable as a person <laughs> until I went there for the first time in when I was like 22. Is that like-minded people or like-minded people, the food and everybody's so casual. It's rainy. It's, you know, it's all this overcast and nice that I like. And the people were just very friendly and everything was just seemed to function on a very alternative wavelength and succeeding at it, <laughs> you know? And, it was it kind of had this utopianness to it, but it, I know that it wasn't always like that. You know, I have friends that grew up there their whole lives and were like, "Yeah, dude, in the fucking seventies, this was a scary fucking place to be, or whatever." <laughs> you know, um, I I watch old movies set in Portland just so I could look at how cool it used to look. Oh yeah, and because they've they've torn down a lot of the old buildings, they've built it's be, you know, there's been such a surge in population that they're tearing down old historic homes and building these gaudy high rises I've made out of glass and it it ruins the landscape because for me I love old buildings I I especially love old buildings juxtaposed against rain yeah you know what I mean like made out of stone and masonry and there's a there's a firmness there's an absoluteness to it and then when they get raised to put up you know an office building made out of glass it kind of ruins the vibe of that town yeah. and I get like the need for it. You know, it's a growing city. You got to have that. They can't grow out. They got to grow up, but it's at the cost of some very cool and historic and interesting yeah, buildings. The nostalgia. the nostalgia of it as well. And it still very much is what it used to be, but like under a sheet glass now, hmm. you know, it, it just, it feels very, uh, Corporate, you, 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 know, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. the, best, the best analogy I could do is, like, that argument that people say that once Disney took over Star Wars. Yeah. You know what I mean? It changes the that tone. There's, there's, there, there's a tone change there. It's still the same thing. It's still the same characters and all that, but there's a tonal shift. Okay. And that's well, kind of... Well, I'm not going to Portland, though. Yeah, no, man. Yeah, Thanks. I think... I mean, I think people that go there now that have never been there, they love it. Yeah. And that's cool. You know what I mean? But it was cooler at one point. Yeah, I still I've never been to like Northwest. I've never been to Seattle. I've never been Seattle. To... You're not missing much. That one I can really say. Yeah, I've been I'm... to Seattle, and it has these really nice pockets here and there. But for what I liked, Portland was more of my kind of a thing. <laughs> it had public transit. Like I didn't know that such thing as public transit ex- existed. People could function without cars for the <laughs> most part. Um, and it just it was it's very progressive, and it's just everybody kind of leaves each other alone. There's a lot of homeless, but people argue that, well, it's homeless because the prices of living has gone up there because yeah. people are so many people are coming now that it's created a, a, a homelessness problem there. Yeah. And they're probably not wrong about that. You know, you know. Interesting. So it's not a, a matter of how states are shipping homeless out of their states? No. <laughs> it's the people that are getting priced there where they used to live. Because I remember, you know, Portland was relatively affordable 10 years ago. You know, you could get a a studio for, you know, in a very hip neighborhood for 800 bucks a month. Wow. You know, now that same studio is 
pushing closer to like two grand now. Yeah, it's kind of like New York. Yeah, it's, it's and it's very fast. You know, it just happened very quick. Quick, quick, goddamn quickly. Portlandia. Yeah, and I think really that's kind of what kind of <laughs> I hate to say it. I love that show because a lot of that a lot of things on that show are very funny, huh. very true. Like yeah, that totally happens. You know, it is very tongue in cheek, but it brought a mass awareness to this city that now everybody wanted to be a part of it. And I think it, it kind of now all of a sudden everybody from California wanted to go there. Yeah. You know? My, I didn't watch Portlandia. I mean, I obviously know about it. You know, the Danzig episode. was. You know. Yeah. That's the only episode I watched. <laughs> um, no, I don't remember what episode I watched, but anyways, my kind of Portland connection is through the food network. Mm-hmm. And through tattoos, just all of that exists. Like all of the food out there is amazing. Yeah, everywhere you go has great food. Mm -hmm. You can't. It's 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 almost impossible to get a bad meal anywhere in that town. Um, Every dive bar you go to has somehow has a gourmet fucking kitchen in it. (laughs) I don't know how that works, but I remember talking to a local one day. I'm like, why is it that I'm going to these shitty fucking dive bars and the burger is fucking amazing? And I was talking to a guy about that at the once. He goes, well, yeah, like X amount of years ago, they, you know, the liquor law changed where like if you're going to serve liquor, you have to serve food. So Portland just took it to an extreme and just, right. and just said, well, if we're going to serve food, then we're going to have then we're going to have the best food. Yeah. And they just kind of went out, went all, all out with it. You know, it's like, yeah, you can <laughs> you do shots of, you know, Buffalo Trace cha- chasing it down with a hams or a Rainier beer. While eating like a double smoked organic beef cheddar <laughs> burger on a brioche bun, uh, that sounds good. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's like in a dark, dingy room, mm. you know, with lascivious activities in the corner, you know. But like it's the black best. tar heroin dealing or yeah, I, 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 dice. I can't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to omit certain strippers truths. involved. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that go on in that town when you look for it, but. It, but you're eating this fucking amazing meal that would be a twenty dollar burger at any other res yeah in other city, but that's just how they function, and it's so casual there, like people take that like, like that's food everywhere there yeah you know and then I feel like when people go elsewhere they're, they're like oh the food wasn't as good there and I'm like well yeah because it's not Portland you know <laughs> there's a literal waffle window like a place oh, called nice. the Waffle Window that's one of my favorite food places to go every time you eat there it's a hole in the wall window where you get a homemade Belgian waffle with fucking ham and egg on it and it tastes amazing like it's it's, it's a good. foodie town you could you, you could spend a week there and maybe like get a like and just there'd still be another two weeks of great food yeah, you want to try scratch the service scratch the service of all the great food there you know interesting well maybe maybe I'll go. I think if you go, because I'm a food guy. Yeah, go for the food. I'll 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 point you where to go. All right, give you me know. a list. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Because other than that, it's like the Food Network. Like we like going to places that we've seen on TV. Yeah, whether it's Guy Fieri or whoever, mm-hmm. you know, wherever we're vacationing, we seek mm-hmm. out those kind of. Places. Yeah, no, you de- you definitely should. Like, I Portland has a ton of that, and it's all delicious. It turned me on to like, oh, you can put peanut butter on a sausage muffin breakfast sandwich and it tastes and it tastes just like pad thai (laughs) you know what i mean that sounds good like it and it's it's it it blew my mind my i got into it because my 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 brother used to live up there so i started going up to portland in 2005 and all the friends i've met and made since then are like yeah you came right at the right time right because it was still seedy enough 
And then by 2010 is when things started to get kind of cleaned up a little bit. And it, and I'm just like, oh, okay. And I went, I just went back recently in October and I used to hang out in Ankeny Alley uh, off of Burnside, just south of Burnside. And it's where the famous Voodoo Donuts is and Dante's Inferno Cabaret and the, the uh, world famous Paris Theater. And this little, and the, oh, there's, there's the, the Dan and Lewis Oyster Bar, which has been there since early 20th century. Anyway, there's this little alley, this Ankeny Alley, that was just kind of seedy and it was just a pass through to get to the other bars in the area and there it was always there was always someone hanging out in a dark corner <laughs> and it was never unsafe you just minded your own business yeah is kind of what it was if you don't mess with anybody no one's gonna mess with you it it's was like the practice space it was that kind of thing yeah you just, you just keep <laughs> to yourself man you smoke your cigarette and keep and keep yeah. on walking and you gotta go turn the corner in there. Oh, I'd, I'd go inside a Shanghai tunnel bar and have a hot dog there. It was great. And, but it was always a little bit dangerous. And now I would just went there in October and they have like, they turned that whole alley into like a patio with lights and like heaters and like walkways. Yeah. And of there's a, the, the voodoo donut that's always been there now has like, it's cleaned up on the outside and it's just, it's like a well-lit open patio garden now. Yeah, so they've definitely upscaled everything to make it more palatable yeah. to everyone. And it kind of might make, oh, that's nice, but oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm probably the, the latter. I, I probably like that it's cleaned up. Right. And you know what? And it, they did it well. They didn't change any of the architecture. They it still didn't, has the feel. It still has the feel, but... You're walking through it, and there's people eating their, you know, clams and burgers and you know, yeah. beer on the sidewalk. And I'm just like, eh. I used to see a different kind of clam get eaten on that street. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, <laughs> <laughs> purely a spectator walking by. Yeah, I'll tell you what, dude. We've been going for a couple hours yeah. here. Um, anything else you want to promote? No, man, I think we hit all the buttons. You know, a new record coming out. I was once a charming man. It'll probably be out in May of 2020. And um, if you're into that kind of thing, you know, come see us or follow us on Spotify, Inst- Instagram. We're all on we're on all the socials. Ghost in the Willow. Ghost in the Willow. Yes, I highly recommend you check him out if you or them out if you haven't already. Um, once again, we are sponsored by Nice Dreams CBD. Uh, you can go to nicedreamcbd.com, and if you put in the low end, you get 20% off. So check them out. I guess we probably should have mentioned that at some time in earlier in the show a couple of times if I'd have known that. <laughs> well, it's, I use I just do it at the end. It's not a big deal. All right, cool. But, uh, yeah, thanks for coming out, man. This thanks, was cool. thanks for having me. You, you have a nice place. Right about now, you're going to hear the outro music, and I might throw on one of your songs off of uh, sure. Songs for Alice yeah. at the end here. That'll put us probably right at two. Well, hours. since since we've talked about the replacement so much, I guess you could probably play Bastards cover. of Young. Do yeah, do the cover. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Um, anyways, thank you for tuning in once again, Gil from uh, what was the name of your band again? Ghost in the Willow. Ghost in the Willow. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right, man. Cool. Thanks. Talk dude. to you guys later. Cheers. Cheers.